Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. When George Washington, the chief of a new and shaky union, laid the cornerstone of the Capitol building, he said, it may be relied upon, it is the progress of this building that will inspire or depress the public confidence. When Lincoln first met Confederate negotiators towards the end of the Civil War, the first thing the Southerners, all former congressmen, asked was, tell me, sir, how is the Capitol? Well, after yesterday's desecration, the old place is today a little depressed, and confidence is not unshaken. ABC Capitol Hill correspondent Bob Clark reports. Officials in charge of security at the Capitol, along with Army bomb experts, were summoned to a Senate hearing. The immediate problem is to guard against any more bombings while keeping the Capitol open to the public. It was clear from the testimony about yesterday's bombing that this won't be easy. It probably was, um, or could have very well been, a clock delay device, and it very likely could have been normal dynamite, which is very easy to obtain. It could have been, oh, 15 to 20 pounds of dynamite. Uh, that amount of dynamite is very easy to bring in in a briefcase. Police did their best to keep the Capitol under tight security today with checkpoints set up to examine packages and briefcases. We tried out the security system, carrying a briefcase into a house office building past police guards, through an underground tunnel and into the Capitol without being stopped or searched. While we may have been recognized by some guards, it's clearly almost impossible to enforce security through all six buildings linked by tunnels to the Capitol. Bob Clark, ABC News, Washington. There were telephone bomb threats to 22 other Washington buildings yesterday and two more today, all false alarms. Credit for the Capitol bombing was claimed in a letter received by the Associated Press today signed by the Weather Underground and postmarked Elizabeth, New Jersey. Nevertheless, Attorney General Mitchell said today there is no evidence of a conspiracy, just a lot of people getting in on an act. So today we are talking with Matthew Steen, who is one of the original members of the Weather Underground. Welcome, Matthew. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I hope your day where you're at. Hope the weather is good. It's warm, but thank you for asking. So, Matthew, I invited you on the podcast because I wanted uh, to talk about who the Weather Underground are. I think there's a younger generation of activists that aren't familiar with your old organization and the revolutionary acts that they engaged in the late 60s and the early 1970s. Um, You were originally part of a larger group called the Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, and you fractured away from them. And I'm curious to know what the reasons were, what the motivations were. The SDS ended its seventh annual convention yesterday in Chicago and accomplished little beyond a deep and bitter split between two factions, the so-called regulars and the progressive labor group, which follows the teachings of Chairman Mao. NBC News correspondent Bill Matney reports. SDS has always prided itself as a loose organization, which possibly explains why its convention ended in confusion with nothing settled. The SDS regulars caucused over the weekend and expelled the rival progressive labor faction. This group is pro-Maoist and prefers revolutionizing labor to campus and street demonstrations. Yesterday, each group met separately and elected national officers. 
Today, the factions held separate news conferences, and from what was said, it was difficult to tell one side from the other. Last night, a minority group faction of the Students for a Democratic Society National Convention split off from the original. This faction included a majority of the previous leadership whose anti-working class politics and practices have been exposed and defeated. They have lost the confidence of the majority of the organization, both on the campuses and at the convention. Recognizing this, they walked out of the convention hall, held their own meeting, and declared that Progressive Labor Party was purged from SDS. As we are SDS and they have been expelled for, because, of the, because of their failure to support the struggles of the, the black people in this country and the other people fighting American imperialism, we're confident that it will be clear by the end of the summer who is SDS and what are the politics of SDS. We will build a revolutionary youth movement capable of actively engaging in the war against the imperialists. We will escalate our attacks until imperialism is defeated in Vietnam. This fall, in Chicago, at the time the conspiracy trials begin, we will lead massive demonstrations against the war in support of the Black Panther Party and in solidarity with all political prisoners, including Huey P. Newton and the aid under attack for last summer's righteous demonstrations. How many of them are you and how many... Right now, the SDS regulars appear to have the upper hand. They control the office files, membership rolls, an expensive printing press, and $10,000 in convention money. Bill Matney, NBC News, Chicago. Well, there was a, uh, a collective reason and an individual reason. And, uh, well, the collective reason is we uh, had... Uh, in June 1969, we had our uh, last national convention of Students for Democratic Society. Uh, at that time, it was the uh, largest uh, student organization in the United States. And um, uh, so a number of different uh, factions came together uh, during the uh, national convention. Uh, and a couple of factions wanted to actually uh, take over uh, leadership of SDS mm -hmm. uh, uh, based on a... A uh, certain uh, set of political principles that a lot of other, a lot, a lot other of us uh, disagreed with, and uh, uh, a couple of those groups were uh, Progressive Labor Party and uh, uh, the Worker Student Alliance, which was uh, 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 aligned with a, an international socialist organization, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, it became a real sort of ideological melee uh, during the convention. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Progressive Labor, Labor Party wanted to strictly organize around uh, uh, working class, uh, blue-collar working class, and uh, ignore the larger cultural revolution, so to say, that was going on around them mm -hmm. uh, with the youth movements, not just in the United States, but... Uh, uh, around the world, uh, from uh, Japan to Europe. Uh, so they were tending to ignore that. In fact, they weren't tending to. They were ignoring it, focusing right. solely on working class uh, organizing. Uh, and uh, we uh, had another, we had a couple of uh, factions uh, within uh, uh, SDS leadership at the time that uh, uh, formed uh, something called the Revolutionary Youth Movement, or RYM, or RIM. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we looked uh, more towards organizing uh, uh, around the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, right. And uh, uh, 
with and paying attention to the uh, ongoing cultural revolution going on around us, both uh, in music and arts and culture and uh, uh, and ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, what was the SDS position on the Black Panthers? Were they not interested in uh, aligning themselves with with them? Well, SDS, as uh, previous to mention, has strongly allied themselves with the uh, uh, Black Liberation Movement and, and within the United States, the Black Panther Party in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was uh, not a problem with SDS leadership okay. at the time, uh, but it was a problem with uh, other uh, factions uh, uh, that had membership in SDS, uh, mm-hmm. such as the Progressive Labor Party. Okay. So uh, that was one of the uh, points of friction between the uh, two groups. Okay. So I was curious about that. So initially you splintered off and you became the weathermen before you became the weather underground. Now, was the weathermen more pacifist or no? Well, uh, no. uh, We had... uh, um, The weathermen, when they uh, actually uh, dissolved... uh, Students for a Democratic Society uh, formally by uh, walking out and taking a large part of convention uh, attendees with us. At that point, we had uh, formed something called Weatherman. Right. And uh, 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 spelled uh, singular, not plural. A lot of people say Weatherman. It's Weatherman. Uh, and uh, okay. so, so that was the... Uh, uh, that was when we formed the Weathermen uh, uh, during the walkout, and then we elected a new uh, SDS leadership. Because annually, we elected new leadership. Uh, so at that then, time, was Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, were they also part of the SDS leadership, or were they part of the newly elected leadership at the Weatherman? Uh, uh, both. Okay. okay. And, uh, uh, you know, the... the uh, Actual leadership, like in an organizational uh, uh, secretary and uh, other officers. Uh, and uh, if I recall, we had all four or five officers. I was not involved at the national level level at the leadership. I was mm-hmm. the uh, president of the local chapter in Oakland, SDS, at Merritt okay. College, which is where the Black Panthers uh, actually went to school and started at Merritt College. But there was no pacifism, uh, so to say, involved in the formation of Weathermen and later transition to Weather Underground. Mm -hmm. Uh, Weather Underground was uh, an attempt, uh, the actual name change was an attempt to degenderize uh, Weatherman. And because, uh, uh, truth be told, and this is fairly well known, the majority of members of Weatherman were women. And I would yeah. say probably close to 60% of the uh, uh, entire uh, uh, women uh, uh, were women. Okay. And, uh, and perhaps a little bit more. And over time, uh, of course, the uh, uh, actual numbers of women dropped over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because women involved in going underground uh, and cutting all ties, ties with above ground. Um, um, connections, including uh, family, friends, networks, etc., mm-hmm. uh, as much as possible to maintain anonymity and effectiveness while underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no, again, no particular uh, 
uh, pacifist principles at that okay. point any longer with weathermen or weather underground. Gotcha. So one of your initial issues, or I'd say the main issue, was fighting American imperialism and the Vietnam War. And it's uh, interesting that the part of the conversation that I think is salient that doesn't really get discussed at this point is that Vietnam was fighting for its independence from French colonialism. That's why the war started. But the United States turned it into some sort of proxy battle against communism. And I just think that was sort of a bullshit line to sell the American population. Because if you really had a discussion about a country fighting for its independence, you wouldn't have a lot of buy-in from the American population. So, Well, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, there was uh, mm, There was something called the domino theory going on. Okay. Um, uh, with uh, uh, with the uh, national political leadership uh, uh, at the presidential level mm-hmm. and uh, foreign policy level, um, and so you mentioned uh, that the uh, United States turned this proxy war against communism, and mm-hmm. uh, that was based upon the domino theory that if North Vietnam fell, that Cambodia, that Thailand, etc., would fall which is basically sort of a principle that we have in Latin America right now. Absolutely. Uh, so that's sort of a duplicate uh, duplication, or the 2019 foreign policy is still a domino theory type of policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, but, so uh, the, fear, the fear is that if Vietnam goes, so goes all these other countries. But what's really at issue here is workers' rights. The reason these folks were latching on to these principles is because they couldn't get a fair shake, they couldn't get decent pay. They were tired of being dominated by a foreign country, France, um, or yeah. in the case of Central America, the United States. So it's really it's really a superficial argument to say that it's about communism, in my opinion. Well, no, because it was really that was uh, that was really a cover for uh, what was really going on. That was economic exploitation, right. uh, the basis for imperialism, uh, right. extraction of minerals, extraction mm-hmm. of, uh, of low labor costs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, actually, the French wasps were defeated in 1954 in Dien Bien Phu. At that mm-hmm. point, uh, uh, they were part of the. Uh, uh, part of the uh, peace accords at that time uh, were that uh, North and that Vietnam would have a free election, and of course that did not occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, North and South Vietnam was uh, were divided. Uh, the United States slowly stepped in uh, to maintain the interest, corporate interests at the time, because yeah. the corporate interests were still there, the ownership right. of foreign resources, etc. Mm-hmm. So the United States, of course, had to step in. A lot of those, uh, uh, in fact, all of those companies were European or American-European collaborations. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a great interest in the United States for, you know, saving capitalist uh, butt. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so and I don't think um, I don't think a lot of people understood that at the time, and they still don't because you know it just doesn't get discussed. America generally enters these wars, at least every war past uh, World War II, in uh, in an effort to protect American business interests abroad, and that is a 
That is a foreign policy that needs to change, and it still hasn't. We still have not learned that lesson. Well, you know, we're you know we are living in a you know, a capitalist society that spans uh, all the continents of the world. So there's a great you know um, uh, there's a great reason for the, these ongoing uh, foreign interventions, foreign mm-hmm. wars, things that are going on. Well, now we have this fight against uh, religious terrorism. And, uh, you know, and a lot of uh, that stems from us drone bombing innocent people and children abroad. I mean, it's amazing to me that America never thinks they're going to get blowback for their actions. It's like they can do whatever they want and there's no consequences. Well, yeah, there's well, going to be consequences. Well, there's an international court that's fairly toothless and ineffective at this point. Yeah. Uh, the ha- the Hague. In the Hague, But, you know, yeah. the... Uh, but uh, as far as these um, uh, wars against uh, the threat of jihadism, the Sharia law, et cetera, uh, and you, you know, the new uh, imaginary caliphate uh, yeah. um, that Muslim world, a part of the Muslim world, like, uh, for as far as the United States and its involvement over there, a lot of that, again, is protection of uh, American interests. Yeah, they would like to create safe zones. Around, uh, okay, and, and Yemen and all of these, uh, very dry and arid and very poor countries. Uh, well, there's uh, a reason we intervene in a place like Iraq or Iran versus a place like Darfur. And it's got nothing to do with the humanitarian reasons, it's all about the resources. Well, yeah, we sort of manage that over with humanitarian organizations that we sponsor. It's Trojan Horse. Well, allow in there the so-called NGOs. Right. Yes, that goes on. A lot of that is good, you know, run by well-intentioned people. And don't get me wrong, there are well, very well-intentioned people working in the State Department. Not everyone over there is an older, uh, yeah. although they may have been or. They may have inherited that situation, and, you know, hopefully some of them are working to soften some of the harsher aspects of, uh, of imperialism as it's applied around the world. I mean, mm-hmm. we have the Philippines, right. where we have a very dangerous situation, oh, not absolutely. just men. So, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, plus there's a great uh, interest by consumers in maintaining the system that we currently have. Okay, uh, consumers, mm, consumers around the world uh, uh, have, uh, I guess, I don't know, a consumer interest. And, uh, and but do what you that think does, some of that's just ignorance of the system? I mean, I also well, I know, feel like the capitalists are constantly telling people consumerism well, people, is your drug. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> The um, uh, there's there's a good point to what you're saying, and uh, uh, it's you know a lot of people have been have been blindsided or blinded by consumer um, uh, the uh, availability of uh, newer and newer consumer products, mm-hmm. uh, all based upon the old principle of planned obsolescence. Mm-hmm. So uh, you instead of an iPhone nine, you have an iPhone ten, right, an iPhone right. eleven. And this happens every other year, and that's planned obsolescence mm-hmm. uh, 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 from a long time ago. But uh, anyway, yes, uh, the uh, how to a, lo- uh, a number of people in the United States, but not a large number, a small percentage, have gone on to 
you know, say with their stock investing, going towards more humanitarian uh, portfolios. Uh, uh, that would be an example of people who uh, uh, are making decisions not based on ignorance. And I really hate to use the word ignorance because uh, we can use it, but a lot of people don't like that because they know, in fact, they are ignorant. They don't like being called that. Well, it's not necessarily their fault if they can't get access to the information. Let's be honest. The mainstream media is part of the corporate business interests in this country, and they only report on things that they want to report on. So if you really want to get actual news, you need to go to a source like Democracy Now! or the BBC or Al Jazeera something outside of the main cable news. I, I, so I don't necessarily blame the American populations for not knowing all these things. They simply don't have access to the information. Well, um, part of it is the educational system that current millennials have gone through, where it's been really dumbed down. Um, the actual textbooks, and Billy Ayers talks about this, uh, because he's, he, of course, is, uh, uh, has been working in that field for uh, close to 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, He's uh, a professor now? Yes. Mm-hmm. And about, you know, the educational curriculum, textbook quality, uh, textbook uh, transparency about history. Uh, right now, for instance, we have, uh, and this is, you know, something with millennials where um, they get their information uh, during, during the time they were going to high school and currently through means other than how we gained information back in the 60s and the 70s. And uh, a lot of it's through social media, uh, maybe Twitter, uh, but both forms are very, uh, say, redacted forms of information flows. Although I do think uh, I do think some of social media is actually helpful because they are being exposed to other sources of information than the cable news, and I love the the stuff that you see with camera phones now. You can't, you know, I don't think we'd know about how bad the well, police brutality was if it wasn't for people recording that stuff on their camera phones. Well, that's been a very helpful aspect yeah. of. Uh, of social media. So let's get back to uh, the Weather Underground for a second. Sure. I want to ask you, what was was the turning point when you folks decided to actually start planting bombs in locations? I know you put a bomb in the Pentagon, I think the bathroom, uh, the Capitol building, and a couple other places. So what was the conversation or the um, occurrences that led up to that? Well, there had been a, uh, previously to, uh, to uh, weather underground, going underground, uh, uh, the primary reason we went under- underground was the uh, murder and assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in Chicago. Right. And Fred Hampton was the uh, chair of the Illinois Black Panther Party. We were very closely aligned with them, although we had a lot of arguments. Uh, but that actual, that actual uh, incident... Uh, is what triggered Weather Underground fully going underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so there were two reasons that we were mm, fighting the system, so to say, uh, quote unquote. And one was anti war, and one was, uh, um, I guess, a post civil rights, uh, uh, not post civil rights, but a, you know, Black Panther Party was an extension of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. 
Right. All, all of us had been involved in civil rights. Uh, some of us who were involved with freedom rights back in the early 60s, mm-hmm. or had close friends who were involved. Uh, so the other reason was, uh, of course, the Vietnam War and anti-imperialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, the main focus was the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, other uh, incursions around Vietnam, like Cambodia and Laos, etc., right, the United right. States is making, and bombing raids are conducting, all of which were illegal. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, uh, Kissinger carpet-bombed Cambodia and received the Nobel Peace Prize. I still don't understand that. Uh, yes, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I often wonder that when I see awards given out nowadays, too. Right. Uh, to different folks for different things. But the uh, other, uh, one of the reasons why uh, we thought we had to take a direct action and something, I guess, uh, uh, armed propaganda, mm-hmm. uh, because in a sense it was propaganda in the sense that it was uh, 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 sending out messages to the American public and to the world in general. Yeah. Uh, if the corporate headquarters of the United Fruit Company or IBM uh, the actual corporate, corporate headquarters were bombed and damaged, and that we had access to that. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we were like uh, 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 fish swimming in the sea, and uh, uh, we can go anywhere. So anytime. the first action was it actually against a corporate headquarters and not the government? No, well, those were people that... Uh, that we were familiar with, that we were in the same circles with, and this was in New York. Okay. Um, and Jane uh, Alford and Sam Melville, uh, you may or may not have heard of them. They were actually some of the very first, um, I guess, called white student revolutionaries, postgraduate students, mm-hmm. um, uh, that started conducting a bombing campaign in Manhattan. Okay. And they actually, had, you know, um, successfully um, uh, accessed these corporate headquarters and placed bombs that created a lot of damage and a lot of uh, publicity. And that was all about a year before we went underground, actually. Okay. Uh, and, and some of that information is available in, in books that have been about our histories. Uh, but uh, there was also, going back to the two reasons that we went under and decided to start, um, uh, and I noticed why the le- uh, leadership was, because I was not part of the weapon leadership, I was just a collective, uh, was, uh, 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 it was anti-racism in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and solidarity with Black Panther Party, anti-imperialism, but under part of that anti-imperialism was anti-capitalism. Right. And, okay. uh, Let's talk and, about that we for were, a second. Sure. I didn't realize that Weather Underground uh, also was involved in actions against capitalism. So tell me a little bit about some of the actions you took against corporations. Were these corporations mainly involved in the military-industrial complex or just general multinational corporations? Well, no, you know, there's like Anaconda Copper Company, uh, uh, which um, um, heavily suppressed worker strikes down in Chile. Okay. Um, uh so that was bombed. Those corporate headquarters were bombed, uh, and that was not. You could say, yeah, they were part of the military-industrial complex. It's just 
because they supplied raw materials that no one's very ultimately used. Okay. Uh, uh, copper. And, uh, of course, they had other mining interests. Uh, United Fruit Company. That was uh, not so much an anti-capitalist as opposed to uh, uh, an anti-imperialist, might say, action because of the exploitation going on mm-hmm. uh, in the plantations in Latin America that they uh, owned and controlled mm-hmm. and the exploitation of resources and workers' labor. Right. Um, uh, and there are also... Uh, groups that were allied with us or who we knew well who either were not part of the weather underground. There were there were literally several dozen groups around the country who were very much like weather underground, who formed their own independent collectives and conducted bombing campaigns. Uh, as you may have heard, there were thousands of bombings that occurred mm-hmm. during the 60s and the 70s and they were all anti-war pro-black liberation, anti-capitalist, and those were done, and that's in addition to draft offices. um, The draft offices. You know, uh, that was the old old draft system. I believe they still have draft offices around the country, Uh, but they're the ones who processed the papers. You know, they were all local draft boards scattered all around the country. Um, those who were attacked, bombed or burned or windows broken or any number of things to disrupt their daily activity uh, because they processed uh, the young uh, boys and then going to off the war in Vietnam. Right. Um, and also military recruiting stations, ROTC buildings, uh, those who were amongst the thousands of targets that were bombed. 12.56 a.m., the explosion that ripped through a restroom on the third floor of the State Department. No one was hurt by the blast. Police who were summoned to the scene described the bomb as being a big one. About 20 minutes prior to the explosion, a woman who claimed she was speaking for the Weather Underground Organization called the Washington Post to say an explosion would occur and added, notify the security people there. We don't want anyone hurt. Here in Washington, a letter received by the Associated Press said the explosion was as a protest to U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. The Weather Underground is reported to be composed of between 20 and 30 people, including fugitive Bernadine Dorn. So now, all of these targets, you were always very careful to make sure there was nobody present when you bombed. And I believe Bernadine Dorn um, would call and leave a message warning that a bomb was going to go off. So... Your intent well, yeah. wasn't to kill people or harm people. It was to destroy the symbols of oppression. Would you say that's fair? Well, yes. There was, uh, you know, one thing is we, we were very, uh, very pro-life because we were very disgusted with the lives being taken in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so we were very, very careful to either uh, make sure that people were not in there, their phone calls ahead of time, Bernadine admitted to, uh, and it's well known uh, 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 that she sent phone messages for the very first weather bombing that occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, KPFT and, uh, headquarters, I think she And, you know, too. communiques were also sent out, so it wasn't just phone calls, communiques accompanied each bombing okay. uh, to explain what the purpose was, uh, uh, why it was done, uh, whether it was done in uh, conjunction with a particular date in history, mm-hmm. uh, things of that nature uh, were contained in the communiques. Communiques in the local uh, media stations, 
uh, and when I was uh, with the Berkeley Tribe, uh, we received a number of those communications before I actually went underground. Uh, these are conventions in June 69. Uh, then I came back to the West Coast, working on the tribe, Berkeley Tribe. Everybody else at the convention went wherever they went, most, mostly the East Coast and Midwest. And uh, uh, between June and November, basically, is when weather went underground. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were all involved in a number of different activities. Involved with People's Park in Berkeley. Uh, okay. Other people were involved in the New York Panther 21 trial. Other people were involved with the uh, trials going on in New Haven with, uh, 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 with the... Uh, Black Panther Party. So there were just, there were, our lives were so busy then. There were yeah. so many issues. So you had uh, multiple uh, tribes, as you're calling them, factions that were working on different actions at the same time. You know, there, there was that. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I want to impress upon you that this was not solely and strictly a weather underground phenomenon upon, uh, about. Uh, white student uh, revolutionaries going underground uh, within the mother country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, they're all basically mostly uh, white uh, uh, student uh, revolutionaries, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, there were a lot more than just the weather underground going on. Okay. Right. We right. did not do thousands of bombings. Okay. I think, uh, I think, there, are, I think there are only like 25 or so bombings actually directly attributable to Weather Underground, okay? There were thousands of bombings going on. Uh, You just were the most high-profile organization that the news was talking about. Yeah, we were the highest profile because we were national. We had an identity with SDS. Now, were you present in Chicago when Fred Hampton was assassinated? And without leaders like Fred Hampton, I think the gangs and the drugs became much more prevalent on the West Side. He was an alternative to that. He talked about serving the community, talked about breakfast programs, educating the people, community control of police. So I think that that's unfortunately another legacy of Fred's murder. And Jeff, as you talk in the book also about how you, uh, a uh, a white radical raised in the South, uh, ended up in Chicago that day as part of the People's Law Clinic there, uh, working with the Panthers. Could you talk about your own trajectory uh, and how you got involved in this story? Well, I grew up in the South. I came from a progressive family, but also it was a segregated South, and I think being a white person there, we all accommodated ourselves in some way to segregation. I think it made cowards of us all. When I got to Chicago, I was influenced by what was going on nationally. Chicago was sort of the hub of all this political activity. You had the Democratic Convention there. Dr. King had marched there. Uh, You had the conspiracy trial starting. You had the National Office of SDS. All the forces were converging. And I was very much moved by the Black Power Movement, the Civil Rights Movement. So we wanted to be lawyers for the people. We wanted to be—so we started the People's Law Office in in a sausage shop. And I think we started it with a sense of collectivity. So it wasn't just me. There were four or five of us who, from the get-go, worked together. And and our mandate was to expose the murders 
who the killers were of Fred Hampton. We did not know that it would take us to J. Edgar Hoover and John Mitchell and the seat of government. But of course, it, it, it turned out that way. And the more we dug and the more we uncovered, the more interested we got and the more we realized that this was a, a, a national program. Some people have compared Hanrahan's group to sort of a, a local hit squad and ordered but was utilized by the federal government and by Hoover. And I think, unfortunately, or not surprisingly, no one has ever done a day of time for the murder of Fred Hampton for that raid. Uh, so I think another legacy is to try to hold our government officials accountable. And interestingly enough, when the Church Committee in the 70s began to investigate COINTELPRO yeah, as well as seconds. Watergate, it was Dick Cheney and, and, and Donald Rumsfeld, Ford's chief aides, who opposed any kind of exposure of this illegality or any kind of restraint on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was here on the West Coast, uh, okay. and there were, yeah, I had met Fred Hampton a couple of times uh, at the convention, uh, and there was a whole, actually, I'm writing a chapter in the book about that, okay. uh, and when the Panthers came into the convention, it was uh, quite, a, quite the scene. <laughs> um, but uh, you have to remember, it was a long time ago, all of us were very young. We were still developing mm -hmm. uh, intellectually. So there were mistakes made, um, and uh, there were, you know, uh, as with all, as with any movement, whether it's an underground revolutionary movement or, say, an above-ground progressive movement, uh, mistakes are always made. Uh, they may not be substantive mistakes, but, you know, that's the process, it's a process of developing uh, your worldview, and uh and while you're young, you also have many more influences than when you are older, okay? Because by the time you're older, you've already learned these influences. Right, right. Uh, they've become part of your psychology. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, we're all in our 20s. Uh, some people are around 30. And uh, so it was... Uh, uh, there were a lot, just a lot of competing influences and complementary influences. Mm -hmm. Uh, going on, but yes, the uh, mm, um, the assassination of uh, you know, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, who was his deputy, yeah. uh, and uh, was a uh, pivotal moment for Weatherman, mm -hmm. and uh, and we went underground as Weatherman, and then a short time later. A few months later, degenderized that phrase to weather underground, okay. and then at some point later, added on organization after it. But by the, that time, I was no longer weather underground; I was at a federal prison. Right, which we're <laughs> going to talk about in a second. Yeah. Uh, so, what were some of the actions that you yourself was involved in? Were you involved in the Pentagon bombing or the Capitol bombing? Ho Chi Minh's birthday was also marked in Washington. A bomb exploded early this morning in the Pentagon, and left-wing terrorists telephoned newspapers to say they were responsible. Stephen Gere reports. The explosion destroyed one of the Pentagon's 140 women's restrooms and blasted out a wall on the fourth floor. No one was injured. The explosion came at 1 a.m., just moments after the Pentagon's duty officer received a warning based on one of a number of calls to newspapers one of which said the Pentagon would be bombed in celebration of Ho Chi Minh's birthday. Rumors of other bombs plagued officials during the day, but sweeps of the building turned up nothing. Speaking for the Pentagon was an Air Force officer called to duty early this morning. 
No one was hurt, fortunately, but I'd like to point out that only through good fortune that the people who work in the Pentagon at night were not seriously hurt or killed. There are quite a few people working right down the hall from where the explosion took place who could have very easily have been in that area at the time. Uh, they had no warning at all and could have been seriously hurt or killed by this irresponsible act. Water from pipes ruptured in the blast seeped down to floors below the restroom, interrupting operation of an Air Force computer bank for several hours, soaking office furniture and equipment, and shutting down some stores operated as concessions in the concourse. So far, there's no monetary estimate of the damage. Much of the Pentagon is a public area with visitors and tourists roaming through the halls, but security was tighter today than yesterday. Ironically, before the explosion this morning, the order had gone out here at the Pentagon to tighten security measures. Because of anti-war demonstrations scheduled for this weekend in Washington and plans to block access to the Pentagon on Monday, packages were to be inspected beginning at 7 o'clock this morning. That's six hours after the explosion. Stephen Gear, ABC News, at the Pentagon. I was suspected in the Capitol bombing uh, because I was subpoenaed for the federal grand juries okay. in Portland, Seattle, uh, run by the um, head of the Internal Security Division of the Justice Department who flew out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most people, uh, most of my former friends and comrades and their accomplices well know those names, Ty Goodwin and Robert Martian. Mm-hmm. Um so, and the Internal Security Division is the one that used to do the, uh, 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 was, uh, the, mm, the investigatory branch of government that assisted, say, Joe McCarthy during the, uh, during, during McCarthy hearings and earlier, um, in the uh, 20s, the Red Scare and all the deportations yeah. that occurred to commun- uh, so-called communists and, uh, Okay, well, p- part of the Internal Security Division's uh, responsibility, so I don't know if to call it a responsibility, but Acton was the uh, counterintelligence program, the illegal counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO kind of stuff? Yeah, COINTELPRO. Okay. Uh, and, uh, which is short, acronym for counterintelligence program, <laughs> which targeted uh, the Black Panther Party, targeted Martin Luther King, tar- mm-hmm. targeted Weatherman and SDF. Yeah. Um, with a, a series of activities that work to try to disrupt each movement mm-hmm. and uh, uh, create uh, rivalries within the group. Uh, right. They would do things like send poison pen letters. I was the recipient of a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know it was it was later all that was later revealed in the uh, Senate search committee hearings mm-hmm. and on uh, domestic um, uh, surveillance uh, that occurred. Anyway, you're back to your original question, uh, yeah. which was uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was <laughs> which actions you were involved in, which bombings, the Capitol, the so Pentagon. So I was investigated for the Capitol. Um, um, our collective put together a, uh, a, um, uh, a triple bombing of, uh, three embassies in Washington, D.C., the, uh, South Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodian embassies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, the bombs were not intended to, uh, go off. Uh, you know, we bought the materials, uh, locally and around D.C. and Maryland, uh, assembled them and I placed them. And, uh, but we never, uh, used fuses. 
So they were, that was more, that is an example of, say, armed propaganda as well as mm. bombings. So it sends a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, my before my collective, I was involved in, um, let's see, uh, breaking into our local uh, draft selective service office in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Later, I firebombed it, burned down, burned down. Thank God the statute of limitations is so bad. Yeah, don't talk about anything that can get you in trouble. <laughs> so, uh... Let me preface uh, that. Let's see. Well, you asked. So, uh, well, what else? And, these, you know, this is just really a recount of things that went on. But some of the other things that I was very much involved with uh, was uh, uh, obtaining identification, Um uh, and I did training. I trained cells that were underground in mm-hmm. obtaining identification and holding on to it and how to use it and when to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's t- actually, well, let's and, talk about that for a second because that's what you were ultimately indicted for by the FBI was uh, federal conspiracy charges and bank robbery related to... Uh, am I, right. That, that's correct, right? Fake identities? Right. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and that was event. That was a topic. I was on sixty minutes uh, back in, I believe, seventy seven. Right, you were the first weatherman underground to actually publicly discuss on national television some of the things that you were involved in. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, more correct is I was the first uh, uh, weatherman or member of the Weather Underground that had been on sixty minutes. Not from the FBI. So did James Earl Ray. Proof that the process really does work is this young man, Matthew Steen. Alias Eric Gilbert Dietz, alias T. Swingle Frick III, alias Romez Tomei. In 1970, while a student at Berkeley, Steen went underground as a member of the militant Weatherman organization. Before he was arrested in 1971, Steen says he had obtained 150 different identities, almost all of them courtesy of various government agencies. What kind of documents are we talking about? Uh, birth certificates, notarized birth certificates. Uh, driver's licenses, various dates, uh, occasionally social security cards, uh, and other uh, superficial types of identification like library cards, etc. And you had no real difficulty in doing this? Uh, no. By the time the FBI got to him in 1971, Steen acknowledges he had used various fake IDs to rip off the Bank of America. He'd buy a set of traveler's checks, then a couple of weeks later claim they'd been lost or stolen and get replacements. He had doubled his money. How much did you make this way? Uh, somewhere between $1,500,000. Among the official documents Matt Steen obtained under assumed names was a U.S. passport. Well, for decades, the head of the passport office in Washington has been keenly aware of the fake ID problem. Francis Knight. I was, uh, so that was, you might say, the first weatherman on national television. Yeah. Uh, at that time. Was and, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn still um, underground at that point? Uh, yes, they were underground. They came above ground, I believe, about six months or so after that interview, as did Mark Rudd. Right. And uh, it was, so it was a very long interview. Parts of it were not used, yeah. um, <laughs> and parts of it were used. And so Dan Rather did a segment with me, mm-hmm. uh, which did not start out well, because his first question was, do you know where Bernadine Dorn is? 
<laughs> so I just put my hands up. This is being stoned. I put my hands right up. I said, "Cut! We're not supposed to be going there." And uh, he's a journalist. You got So that was that was a funny start to it. <laughs> but well, you know. So yes, yeah, so there was that. So part of the so one part was the uh, uh, well, I might I might add that that actual sixty minutes uh, film was later used as a training film for State Department employees. <laughs> And yeah, for for all the passport officers, because I had obtained passports legally. That's funny. These were not manufactured like you see on television, right? Mm. No, these are real. And so, how did you? So these were actual passports from folks. Yes, passports. How did you? In different names. It's a very long explanation. Okay. But uh, but it's basically building up a uh, identification file. Mm-hmm. I.e., you know, getting, of um, course, well, the birth certificate, getting driver's licenses, voter registration. Uh, at the time, voter registration was allowed to be used as a second form of identification. I see. Uh, no longer. Oh. <laughs> Me, probably. <laughs> and, uh, so I did change a few things. You might have something to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had a direct, directly, and infor- that was an unfortunate result, so to say, or maybe not. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending upon your national security angle. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I was later used to trading film, and I don't know, and it was apparently was showing around the world, I guess, you know, State mm. Department had passport offices everywhere. Um, so it was basically what to avoid. Right, right. <laughs> when they issued passports. <laughs> so, anyway, so that was one, one responsibility. Uh, that I developed, actually, mm-hmm. because nobody asked me to do it. I just happened to be good at it. Right, Better and it was necessary. Else. How are you going to stay underground if you didn't have the fake IDs? Yeah, well, valid ID, not just manufactured. Right. Because fake ID, people think, is manufactured like mm-hmm. by the mafia or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to remember, the times are different then. That's right. And now, I can still, I can do the same thing all over again today, okay? Yeah. And I can probably get passport. Hmm. So, well, now uh, I know but I'm, that's I'm why I don't want to go into all the details. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't. <laughs> except all the steps were legal. All of them were legitimate. But oh, you have wild. to have patience to do it. Yeah. And so I'm not going to give away any tips to, you know, <laughs> I don't want the FBI knocking on my door tomorrow. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> So, so that was one. That was one part. Another part was uh, uh, financing uh, uh, safe houses around the country, mm-hmm. so that other collectors or members of the underground could stay there for a while and either use that as a base of operations for planning and action, right. or simply as a way station. Mm. And uh, so that was part. Of it. And I had gotten safe houses from Boston to California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now and, you folks were uh, robbing banks, more or less, to fund the cost of that, correct? We were doing what? Uh, robbing banks. Well, uh, I don't think, I think I was the only one uh, okay. in the Weather Underground uh, that actually uh, went there. Okay. There were other groups that also went there with very bad consequences mm-hmm. uh, for them personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, I think you're referring to David Gilbert and Kathy Bodine. Well, no, I wasn't referring to them so much, but there was, you know, I was looking for, yes, there is that, but that's a whole 
separate topic mm-hmm. uh, for which all of us have regular sympathy for. Uh, but uh, uh, there were um, mm, there were other people like uh, there was a former uh, Weatherman Collective in Seattle mm-hmm. um, that eventually broke up over time. Uh, and some members of them, there, some of them were part of the Seattle Liberation Front. Uh, that was really the only other uh, weather, uh, mm, uh, uh, weather uh, mm, chapter, you might say, on the West Coast was in Seattle. Okay. okay. Uh, and this was back when weather, weathermen first formed, not so much weather underground, because right. remember, it had changed and thinned out by then. Uh, and a lot of the membership, you know, people who were in the weather underground, did not know each other. Hmm. Necessarily, right. and everybody went by aliases. So a few people, you know, we knew what each other looked like, but uh, in the main, that is not necessarily true. Uh, so it's almost like anonymous in a, anonymous in a sense, where you have a, a fake screen name, and everybody knows what that identity is, but not necessarily who the actual person is behind that identity. Well, I had like oh about 150 different identities, so it would be very, very, very difficult to trace me back. Well, and I mean to be fair, FBI. yeah, you folks evaded FBI capture for a very long time. It's actually quite remarkable. Well, it's even more remarkable that the uh, other uh, folks that know whether uh, evaded capture that uh, that long, and I'm talking about Bernadine and Billy mm-hmm. and Mark Rudd and Jeff Jones mm-hmm. and. Uh, a number, of, a number of folks who eventually uh, emerged uh, in a uh, uh, an immersion strategy uh, mm-hmm. to go above ground and rejoin different progressive movements, mm-hmm. uh, which is eventually what happened. And of course, that's what I'm doing as well uh, currently, uh, mm-hmm. and and all of us have been involved either that or in educational activities. Um, Ever since uh, we had got out of prison, and I was, I believe, uh, myself, uh, Kathy Bedeen, and Dave Gilbert uh, were probably uh, the only weather people that actually were in prison. Bernadine uh, Dorn, from uh, what I've read, served a year for contempt of a federal grand jury, and I don't think that was prison. That could have been Cook County Jail, which Mm -hmm. is not a very pleasant place at all. Uh, and but most of the other people in the entire leadership got off entirely free with very little to no jail or even prison time. Mm-hmm. So some of us, yeah, did pay a price. Uh, and David is continuing the same ultimate price. Uh, right. It seems to me that David Gilbert paid the ultimate price as he's still in prison and will be for life. Um, yeah. I. You know, I know he was arrested for driving the getaway card in uh, a robbery associated with the Black Liberation um, Group. Black but, Liberation Army, yeah. yeah and they're but, called the uh, M-19, I think uh, was their name at the time. Okay. Not M-19, uh, yeah. M-19, that was... Uh, but I can't speak to any of that at all. No, I understand, but... I know, other than rumors, Brett, so I can't speak to any details around that at all. Right, right. Um, my question uh, is this, though. Would you say... I mean, because he had a pretty harsh sentence for somebody that wasn't actually involved in the shooting or the robbery itself. He just was there driving the car. 
but he's in jail for life, so it seems to me that he's a political prisoner in a sense. My first chance for parole is 2056. I had been sort of awakened already that something was wrong by the civil rights movement. See, in terms of my early consciousness, I'd never been exposed to the left or heard of the left. I believed that America was a democracy, and I took that really seriously. And I, I, didn't, I never cut the wink that it's a democracy for some people, not for other people, and I fervently believed it. And then when I saw, with the opening of the civil rights movement, that uh, certain people were denied any opportunity or right to vote or anything, that was like, I went off, you could say, because I believed in the myths. But I still assumed that America stood for democracy abroad. What happened when I was still in high school, my best friend in high school had an exchange student from Vietnam living with him. She wasn't a communist, she was from an aristocratic family. But she let us know that in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh was considered the George Washington of Vietnam, that they were the ones who fought for independence. And the so-called regime and South government in South Vietnam had been imposed by the United States as a continuation of French colonialism. Well, he, he, he is a political prisoner, and there are other political prisoners in the United States. Uh, uh, mostly uh, black folks who are involved with the, uh, either the Black Liberation Army and the Black Panther Party who are still right. in prison. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, that is pretty harsh, because in California, as a matter of fact, and this is something uh, David should use uh, uh, for uh, any future hearings that he has for release, uh, in California, they uh, peeled back that law of, uh, of being an associate, of being an accomplice, mm -hmm. such as a, dri a getaway driver during a crime that involves uh, killing. California repealed that law. New York, uh, New Jersey, the East Coast, no, I, mean, I believe we're the only state so far that has repealed that law. So that's something uh, his defense team may want to uh, look at and refer to I as would, the, yeah, I would think the, so. the California law, which would then, if he were in California, he would be automatically released. Well, you know, which, yeah, that's an interesting angle. It seems to me that that was an unintended thing that occurred. And I don't think anybody started out thinking there would be a police shootout. And oh, no, people, I know people were prepared for it. Okay? Oh, really? The BLA were not lightweights, okay? Okay, <laughs> so then that might be a different conversation. <clears throat> that's a different conversation that I can't have with you Understood. or anyone else because it's purely speculation Understood. on my part. Okay. But one would just, you know, common sense would tell you, okay. you know, that if you're going to pull off that kind of reaction, uh, that it's you have to be prepared. Well, yeah, then, you, have you, know. to be, you have to be prepared. Maybe not everyone was prepared. Maybe not everyone knew what was in everybody else's mind. Right. But I'm just saying. It was an acceptable risk, and um, but I but I don't know if everybody was conscious of that thinking at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, as, as far as I know, um, uh, the former weather folks that got involved with uh, the, uh, the BLA folks. Um, and this was after the weather underground was dissolved, correct? Right, okay. yes. Uh, yeah, because there were a couple of uh, pushbacks against this dissolution of the weather underground, which was not so much a dissolution as well it was, but it was a strategy of immersion. 
to emerge of you know rising you know out of the underground community of general progressive movements that are going on locally and around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this probably happened after the shootout that we had here in Los Angeles with between the LAPD and the Black Panther Party, which was just, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. The police at that time were absolutely looking for those consequences. I don't think the police were uh, innocent in the sense that their police officers doing, trying to, you know, fight crime. That's, I think that's kind of bullshit. I think. Well, the shootout, the shootout in LA was uh, just, just, or just an overpowering. It's sort of like what happened in Philadelphia mm-hmm. with the move people where they actually bombed the row houses. Well, they actually bombed the headquarters down in LA. Uh, the Black Panthers, and they eventually busted him. And people eventually uh, came out from 20 hours later or something. Uh, but most of them got extremely long prison sentences. Yeah. Uh, Geronimo Pratt, I think he got out of few just a few years ago. Uh, he was basically the deputy of um, uh, head of the Panther Party in L.A., mm-hmm. and um, he got a life sentence. But he eventually he got out, I believe. I get so irritated with the conversation when people go to this place. Well, you know, they were doing lawless things. They were, you know, buying guns and bombing places. Well, they weren't doing and, lawless things because the Black Panther Party was only arming themselves. Right, like I understand. The rest of I, I agree with you, Matthew. What I'm saying is the people that disagree with you and I make those claims. But they don't seem to understand how violently racist the police department was at that time. They still are, but they were even worse back then. So oh, the idea terrible. that these folks aren't allowed to defend themselves is fucking ridiculous. Well, you know, I, mean, I would just uh, say to the typical homeowner who may be, you know, middle of the road or something, member of the NRA, <laughs> that, you know, when the uh, drug police come uh, kicking in your door without a warrant, because the warrant's supposed to be three houses down, you have the right to shoot back. Well, they'll defend you know, Of course, you're risking their... your life if you do, but, you know, so that places them in the same frame of mind as the Black Panther Party. This was in as well as their home. Right. But the headquarters was a commercial property, okay? No, it was I, not I, someone's I you, home. I hear, <laughs> I hear you, but the problem is, is a lot of these NRA, NRA members are entirely racist, so most of this stuff is racially motivated, and it's got... It has nothing to do with their actual, you know, phony. Well, no, I know, I you know, know but saying? this is just sort of this is just sort of trying to draw on a uh, a very uh, an analogy, weak as it may be, mm-hmm. no, uh, I that you, I you know it. those types can relate to. Yeah. But you know, I'm not expecting anybody to relate to it. But it is a valid analogy. It's a valid analogy. I think this is important. It's a valid analogy because the analogy make kind of shows how they're hypocritical because the same folks that are saying I, I'm an NRA member, I want my rights, are the same people that are generally racially motivated and have would take the side of the police against any black person. So Well, there's, there's a lot of, you know, nonsense going on out there. Nonsense uh, hypocrisy. Yeah. You know, such as people who are opposed to abortion or for the death penalty. Now, you know, I've never had that successfully explained to me the paradox of those <laughs> competing decisions, but there it is. There it is. And uh, so it's the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, racism in the United States has become more sophisticated. 
complicated in some ways. Uh, I'm talking about the police departments. Uh, hence the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and all the uh, um, all the photo ops. The police have all of a sudden started presenting their stuff to uh, camera user, uh, phone users. And uh, so, I mean, uh, they... You know, they've learned better than to use blunt force trauma uh, to oppress people. I think they learned that with Ruby Ridge mm -hmm. and a couple of other, you know, big, huge uh, <laughs> political errors mm -hmm. uh, that went all the way up to the White House, you know. So, I mean, I'm looking at this thing from a very national, you know, perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a local perspective, because we have, you know, there's a lot of police departments that are uh, under, um, uh, that are under uh, reform, um, uh, reform proposals right now, either because they're, because they're in some position against them, compelling them to um, adopt reforms. But and those reforms were to, I, I think, make the oppression uh, more sophisticated and spread Absolutely. out and less blunt force. So, right. I mean, our criminal uh, criminal prosecution system is so damn racist. I, I mean, why do you need blunt force when you can just lock people up, third strike marijuana charges for a life? Well, you know, it depends on, I guess, what states you're in now uh, and what the laws are in those states. Well, it's for changing, instance, the, yeah. For instance, the cannabis laws have changed quite a bit, Thank but God. not in all states. Some mm -hmm. states are still as oppressive as they are uh, were in 1950 around marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, I would suspect most of those are southern states, but yeah. who knows? Uh, so, and that affects the um, uh, uh, number of prosecutions for a variety of crime, you know, say drug crimes, minor drug crimes, to which other crimes can be attached. Uh, to send people away because when they indict you, they indict you for everything that you possibly indict you for, well, and then be the bargained down. Penalty, yeah. so, right, so they go for everything and they get something. Mm. Yeah, we'll throw it all at the wall and see what sticks, sort of a mentality. So I wanted to ask you uh, as a collective, I think the Weather Underground fully believed that taking these actions would change the way the United States was behaving. But that didn't happen. So when when you folks dissolved, did was it because of the disappointment in that or was it because the Vietnam War was coming to an end? What were the reasons? Well, I think uh, a large, uh, uh, large reason was uh, really the end of the draft. Uh, oh, I see. And, yeah, the end of the draft uh, and the uh, end of the war. Uh, those were two primary reasons because remember the actual overall movement was not the weather underground it was the anti-war movement mm -hmm. that was the largest movement going on in the United States at the time it was not necessarily an anti-imperialist movement an anti-capitalist movement or an anti-racism movement uh, as many people will acknowledge it was an anti-war movement from which all the rest of us emerged. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, uh, as I said, you know, earlier, these, there were just a number of influences. Out of that anti-war movement came a number of other movements, including the feminist movement, uh, mm -hmm. 
and that didn't come directly out of the anti-war movement, but anybody who was a feminist at the time was an anti-war person. Yeah. So it was, yeah, and then, you know, and the same thing with, you know, civil liberties issues, uh, mm-hmm. issues around civil rights, uh, all of this, you know, just became merged, even though some of these were separate movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them overlapped, but Weather Underground came out of all of these influences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the largest influence of all, uh, uh, which we had been working in, all of us, and we were everybody, uh, since we first started, was anti-war, which then we grew developed a stronger understanding of anti-imperialism, of the capitalist system, and so all of these influences influenced every single one of us. But not the entire anti-war movement. The anti-war movement was more amorphous, uh, drawn around this one phrase. And the anti-war demonstrations, of course, were huge back then. Yeah, much. huge. There were hundreds of thousands of people, not like today. Yeah, it's actually crazy that the country has become so complacent, but I think that sort of harks back to your initial point on consumerism in a a way. Uh, I think that's well people into complacency, yes. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the Robert Redford film, The Company You Keep, which is basically about the Weather Underground, and I believe there's a character in the film that is modeled off of you. Is that the case? Right, don't move! Hands in the air! You are under arrest for the murder of Hugh Crosley. Sharon Solar is one of the longest-standing fugitives on the FBI's most wanted list, was arrested yesterday, 30 years after the notorious bank robbery that claimed the life of a guard. You're late. Well, if I'm not here, they can't fire me, right? Who's your best reporter? New reports reveal that terrorist suspect Nicholas Sloan remains at large. Do you still have your friend in the FBI field office? I'm not sure she ever wants to speak to me again. Get me something and you can keep your job. What's wrong? You look weird. I'm fine, honey. Can I just see the case file for all time's sake? Do you think because we hooked up in college, I'm going to give you access to FBI wiretaps? Wiretaps? You talk to Jim Grant. Who's Jim Grant? He's a lawyer, man. He's obviously a responsible single parent, pillar of society. Nothing I can turn to a story. Mr. Grant, I'm just trying to put the pieces together. I don't have time for this. I look at the man's history. Nothing. The man doesn't exist before 1979. We all died. Some of us came back. We're not going to school. We're going to go on a little trip. I think he knows how to run, which means he has an advantage. I got him. He's stairwell. Don't Stay right there. Kids our age were being murdered by our government. We made mistakes, but we were right. We're bringing these people down, and I hope I don't find you in my way. What are you going to do? My job. FBI was in my apartment. They're pissed because I'm doing their job better than they are. You're about to do a lot of damage to a lot of people. I have no idea how much. I don't want anything to do with this. Did you kill that man? Of course not. Right now, nothing he's doing makes any sense if he's guilty. Got him. You have a full green light. I don't think he's running away. I think he's trying to clear his name. Secrets are a dangerous thing. We all think we want to know them. But you also discover something about yourself. I hope you're ready for that. 
Yeah, that's what I've heard and read about. Um, and <laughs> so, uh, yeah, did you I ever have any conversations was, with Robert before he? Uh, no, absolutely no. I had absolutely no con. They had no contact, probably because they couldn't find me. Yeah, well, there's <laughs> Which, that. Uh, it's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as well, all of us quite public now. But uh, yeah, there was uh, this uh, one character. Uh, I believe his name is uh, the character's name is Nat McLeod. It's played by Sam Elliott. Yeah. Uh, and I am very, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, played by him, and it was, uh, and uh, there was a couple of write-ups about it, and so it was just it was guessed that I was. That was the character who was portraying me because of, and it was an amalgamation of my activities over the years yeah. as well as current activities. Also, but, you, that character was not in Chicago. I believe the rest of the cast was sort of. Based I'll have in the to. Well, yeah, they were all. Yeah, I'll have to look back at that because uh, uh, I've got. I've got it. All this gets old after a while. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, really, it does. I'm sure. I'm sure everybody feels that no, way. No, no. Uh, you'd be surprised. But but it's good. It's good. Very good for the millennial generations exactly. and the generation that uh, preceded them, the X generation. Uh, Lessons learned. Exactly. Almost so. everybody that I run into uh, here in San Francisco, uh, well, everywhere. Uh, have heard of weathermen and the weather underground. Mostly they relate to weathermen. Yeah. Uh, because we are, you know, featured in some songs by some popular groups, uh, like popular to some. And uh, we're in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, plus there's, there's been, oh, thousands, probably a couple of thousand uh uh, articles written about us in academic journals mm-hmm. worldwide of a couple thousand. Yeah. And just think back to what, you know, you had to write about when you were in grad school or your undergrad, you know, that's, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of academic journal articles uh, about mm-hmm. role play and uh, resource evaluation, just all these sociological, psychological, terror, what they call terror uh, studies. Yeah, so, in fact, that leads me to my next question, Matthew. So, some folks, Mm. definitely on the right, would consider you to be a domestic terrorist, and I would say even some Democrats would consider you to be a domestic terrorist. What is your response to them? Uh, Well, uh, terrorism is supposed to strike terror into the hearts and minds of whoever's being terrorized. Um. I can't say that the bombings mm-hmm. and the bombing campaign that everybody, not just Weatherman, was involved with struck terror into people's hearts and minds. Uh, yeah. Call terrorism, yes, that will strike fear in everybody's hearts and minds when you set off bombs in the middle of Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. We, we have this incredible uh, state of terrorism going on with uh, mass shootings. Correct. So would you say the main difference between what you guys did and what these things you're listing are is that you never intended to kill anybody. You tended to destroy symbols of oppression. Like you were, you, you made sure that you bombed locations at times where there wasn't people present. Whereas these other folks are doing the opposite. Oh yeah. They're going after human sacrifice and we're not, and we never, you know, that, that was, uh, that was, would have been the most hideous things to us. Yeah. Uh, the, um, 
Uh, no, we never killed uh, or seriously injured anybody. I think some people might have been cut by flying glass once, mm-hmm. uh, but minor wasn't, you know. I mean, it's not pleasant being cut by anything, but uh, we, um, we were focused especially on property damage and symbolic damage. Symbolic damage was rep- the Pentagon of the Capitol represented that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there were also anti-police actions. There were police stations bombed. That is true. Uh, there were there was police equipment destroyed. Mm-hmm. That is true. Uh, that's because the police were very much a focal point. Uh, yeah. Because they were the ones who were uh, at the uh, behest of the ruling class uh, directed to um, um, dissolve these local uh, militant, black militant organizations. And uh, so, mm-hmm. yes, the police also became a target of weathermen, weather underground. Um, which is understandable, in my opinion. And there was, in fact, you know, we were accused of, you know, and this is one that sort of alienates some of the Democratic establishment from me here in San Francisco, even though I am part of the Democratic network, mm-hmm. very much so, uh, is that we were accused of bombing a police station in San Francisco that uh, uh, killed uh, one uh, policeman and injured seven or eight others. Is that and, the, uh, uh, the uh, park station? Park, that was the park station, uh, park station, yeah. Uh, no, that was in 1970. Okay. Uh, and uh, so it was uh, uh, nothing that we were involved with. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I would never do anything in my own hometown because this is, I'm, well, you know, this is my hometown, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so why was uh, the Weather Underground blamed for that bombing? Uh, because they had, uh, the FBI and the FBI had done a raid on a um, uh, on a building in San Francisco, uh, and uh, well, in North Pacific Heights, and uh, uh, they found bombing manuals, and materials, and uh, things that would indicate that the collective at the time in San Francisco, which I was not part of, because I was in Manhattan at the time, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure where I was. I could have been working for the Berkeley Tribe. I don't know time. But uh, that linked them to potential bombings, the occupants of the house, the fingerprints, the whole nine yards. Uh, ultimately, and so that tagged around after all of us for years and years and years, for 25 or 30 years. And uh, Eventually, it ended up they had arrested someone who was a member of the Black Liberation Army who admitted mm. to actually doing that bombing. Okay. Okay. And um, so it was that was cleared up because they had federal grand jury investigations in San Francisco uh, and okay. elsewhere investigating this part station, part precinct of police bombing. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had nothing to do with that. So were you present in Manhattan when the bomb exploded accidentally at one of your safe houses? That was uh, not a safe house. Oh, uh, that was not. That was not a safe house. That was, uh, um, uh, if I recall correctly, Captain Dean's house. Um, 
sisters and brothers, the head of the police sergeants association called emotionally for all-out war between the pigs and us. We accepted. Last night, and now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, March 6, 1970, 46 years ago today, the day homegrown terrorism blew a historic New York City home to bits. Guard your banks, guard your children, guard your doors. For that was the day a bomb accidentally exploded in a 19th century Greenwich Village townhouse, a building once owned by stockbroker Charles Merrill, one of the founders of Merrill Lynch. The bomb was being assembled by members of the Weather Underground, a radical left-wing group that took its name from the Bob Dylan lyric. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Three members of the group were killed outright. Two others, Kathy Boudin and Kathy Wilkerson, whose father owned the townhouse, survived the blast but quickly fled the scene. Police are centering their search in Chicago for the young woman who escaped the townhouse during the explosions. In the confusion that followed, actor Dustin Hoffman was spotted retrieving valuables from his apartment in the townhouse next door. After years on the run, Kathy Wilkerson voluntarily surrendered in 1980. She would serve less than a year in prison. Among the four suspects arrested was Catherine Boudin. More spectacularly, Kathy Boudin was arrested for her role in a 1981 Brinks truck robbery that left three people dead. She was paroled in 2003 and was later, and not without controversy, appointed an adjunct professor at Columbia University in 2013. As for the Greenwich Village townhouse, well, a new owner rebuilt it in the late 1970s in an eye-catching and distinctly non-19th century style. It changed hands in late 2013 for a reported nine and a quarter million dollars. No, I was not. Okay. Uh, I knew a couple of people. Uh, one of the uh, uh, people, uh, I believe it was Ted Joel, they could not identify for quite a while um, because there was nothing left of his body. Uh, and uh, uh, so there were, yeah, I was not there. Uh, other folks were or were circulating around and through and all of that at the time, but I was not one of them. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a, you know, great. It was a very hurtful, a real hurtful blow, and uh, there was a lot of controversy uh, around uh, exactly what the folks were doing in the townhouse uh, with the uh, materials they had in the basement. So, and I really don't want to get into that. No, fair enough. I understood. Um, I uh, did but it was painful. Ask... It was oh, painful ahead. for all of us after that happened. Yes, oh, absolutely. and that actually that incident actually sort of changed what I think Billiers uh, uh, called the military strategy. Uh, although I think that's a little sort of pompous because <laughs> 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 we did not have an army. Uh, there were only a few hundred of us, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, so I think you called it a military error. So yeah, I guess you could say that. But it seemed it's a little bit over the top. Understood. And, Were you present uh, for the Days of Rage activity in uh, Chicago? The militants, the young people, the students, had been the heart and soul of every demonstration since 1965. But we were always being contained and controlled by 
you know, liberals. And we felt that we ought to call a demonstration which we weren't contained and controlled. What we were hoping for was a huge outpouring of militants, um, of young people. The weathermen predicted that 50,000 people would come to Chicago. Instead, the days of rage began with just a few hundred protesters. When we arrived at Lincoln Park uh, that first night of the demonstration, the feeling of being deflated and defeated in me was palpable. And uh, then the question was, do we go forward? And we did go forward. My count was there were maybe tops 200 people there. I thought it looked somewhat ludicrous uh, to see all these kids wearing uh, their football helmets, uh, shoulder pads. Ayers remembers that some of the protesters carried a hidden arsenal of street weapons, steel pipes, chains, slingshots, baseball bats. Even if there were just a few hundred of us, I don't think I had any doubt in the middle of it that we should do it. Um, we should try to get downtown and try to attack the federal building and so on. No, I, I boycotted, actually boycotted, but uh, oh. no, I was busy with my duties at the Berkeley Tribe. Okay. Uh, a lot of us thought it was absolute suicide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Absolute suicide maneuver, so did the Black Panther Party. Uh, yeah, I know, it became very, sort of very famous uh, 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 juncture in the history of Leatherman. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but no, but I had some very close, including my partner, who was there, who was busted, mm. uh, and she was, uh, she was, she was ultimately convicted and thrown in Cook County Jail, mm. and uh, for assaulting police officers. So, was, yeah, so I do have very personal connection to Days of Rage because I had partners, plural, there, at, mm. you know, during both the Women's March as well as the main uh, uh, going through the Gold Coast and uh, crashing the place. So, which is what we called it at the time, crashing. Mm. Um, okay. So, no, I, no, I was not, although I had, you know, uh, uh, very personal connections to it. Uh, okay. I, I was, I was busy here, and, uh, and after the, uh, uh, the verdict in the Chicago 8 trial, or Chicago 7 trial, mm -hmm. uh, uh, those verdicts came in. We we had issued, as well as a number of organiza organizations, that the, the day after, it was called TEA, or the day after, we had issued uh, instructions nationwide for nationwide protests called the day after protests. Mm -hmm. And the actual purpose of it was to trash the hell out of anything that we could find in whatever city we were in, and which okay. is exactly what we did. Well, anyway, there was, okay. there was just a lot of history that's still unwritten. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you're writing a book on this. It's important, uh, it's important stuff. Well, there are, there are things that haven't really been focused on, either, you know, things that uh, uh, other folks have written already, half a dozen folks that have written already, just things that were glossed over, mm -hmm. you know, with, you know, and of course, they're writing from their own individual perspectives. Authoritative perspectives, but uh, there's a lot of things are lost over. 
Yeah. So after you got out of prison, you actually served as an elected official in Isla Vista, which is an area outside of uh, UC Santa Barbara here in California. Uh, yeah, so, that's, a so, that's a so-called student ghetto. Uh, it's an yeah. unincorporated <laughs> area of student housing only. Very yeah. nice. No, housing I've been there many times. Have, yeah, I had friends that attended UCSB. Well, I, back in the early back in the seventies when I was involved, yes, I got elected uh, and reelected uh, as chair, and eventually became uh, exec director. Everything going on around just uh, we had a. Uh, we had a voting machine. In other words, whatever our council said, the entire student population voted that way, 90%, mm-hmm. so that we held a voting block mm-hmm. for any supervisor mm-hmm. uh, or congressman or anyone else who wanted to get elected that right. involved our vote. So it was very powerful at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. What's your question? That's great. Um, so, you know, which is interesting to me because after getting out of prison, this didn't seem to... Um, impede your ability to get elected, which means people still had respect for your activism. I was, yeah, it didn't, it didn't seem to do that at all. And, you know, that's about, oh, uh, right around that time period is when the 60 Minutes interview came out, okay. which in a town like Santa Barbara is very outsized, okay? You cannot walk down the street. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco, <laughs> you can walk down the street and get away with it, but Santa Barbara, after no. that came out, no way. And that's when I started guy, getting, yeah. that's when I started getting poison pen letters from the FBI <laughs> written to local newspapers about wow. me. So yes, there was pushback. Oh, no doubt. I mean, you know, it's the FBI. Uh, so there now, were pushback. I have one really important last question for you, Matthew, because I think this is um, something that you have wisdom in this area from your experiences in life. What would your sure. advice be currently for young activists that are progressive um, and that are trying to change what's going on, whether it's, um, you know, criminal reform, whether it's environmental justice, uh, whether it's Medicare for all, what, what is your advice that you would give on how to actually motivate change? Well, there's a lot of very broad policy issues uh, going on around the country right now, and disregarding all these presidential debates, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I would say, uh, one, uh, understand that there will not be a violent upending of the system overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we were hoping for. I'm not necessarily violent, but in classic terms, that's what it would be called in any political philosophy class. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Uh, except maybe in a very much smaller community, uh, not large cities. Um, and, and what I'm what I'm inferring there is that change seems seems to be and always has been incremental. Uh, that's very frustrating. It involves if you're working in policy legislation compromises because you're simply not going to get your way, and it's not going to be your way or the highway. So this is uh, just advice for organizers. Uh, let, me, let me stop you there, because I do have a question on that. I, I don't disagree that that's historically what's happened, but don't you, in a way, believe that the only way to get the incremental change is to take the hard line? Because if we acquiesce to incremental change right from the get-go, 
the, the well, no, you're, you know, I'm not saying not take the hard line. I'm just saying the hard line is going to end up being moderate okay, by gotcha. the time it passes. <laughs> and what very well may pass may not look anything remotely like what you first thought of. Indeed. Okay, the end product will not be yeah. the uh, starting vision, okay? Yeah. Uh, the, the True story. Okay, and I do a lot of policy work in San Francisco, and mm -hmm. I do a lot of it in Santa Barbara. And, uh, you know, I would like uh, immediate change. I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to wait six months for a city resolution to work its way around and then another year and a half for the budget to catch up with it, to start operationalizing it. I mean, by the time two years down the road, there's always other things going on. And you've lost track of what you started with two years ago. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, um, it's a challenge. It's a multicasting challenge. Uh, one, you have to, you know, look at where people are coming from now. Uh, there's not a lot, there's no radical activity going on like there was weather with weather uh, in those days at all. Uh, I've seen some, I mean, there's the Antifa movement. Mm -hmm. uh, right, and, and really Antifa actually has been around a long time. They came from Europe in the... Uh well, yeah, that was some of their that was their ideological origins, but a lot of them came out of the anti John Brown anti Klan League, which actually weather members weather started. Okay, mm -hmm. and so actually Antifa physically, the membership eventually you know ideologically derived from you know uh, actions in Germany with the. Uh, uh, the, with the G Summit meetings and all of that type of thing going on over there, they've always been far more active than here in the States. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a grab hole here in the United States uh, mm -hmm. and former Klan members or anti-Klan members from the John Brown League uh, were some of the virtual Antifa organizers. Yeah. Okay. So there is sort of a direct uh, line uh, mm -hmm. uh, between those. But Antifa now, funny, funny enough, uh, or sad enough, is now being uh, uh, proposed to be listed as a uh, domestic terror organization. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, that's the latest proposal out of the Trump administration. Which is insane. Uh, the Nazis, well, the neo-Nazis, they fight are perfectly great people, according to Trump. But what's your hmm? quote on the two-party system? Uh, well, two-party system is... Um, uh, Fuckers on the one hand and motherfuckers on the other. And, <laughs> and that's about the, you know, that's about it. And everything uh, turns to mush. Yeah. So, you know, where Bernie's uh, pushed, uh, pushing planks to the, uh, the Democratic uh, national platform to the left, yeah. uh, those plan planks will be put back into place <laughs> after well, the election. If we even Bernie. win. If we even you. win. Yeah, I hear you. But, I so, hear you. no, I'm not. So I'm only marginally involved, Democratic Party. Well, I'm a little more marginally involved. I'm, my my heart is only marginally in it. I guess you no, could I say. Understand. I understand. But I'm but I am involved, uh, you know, politically quite quite involved with Democratic Party locally, in candidates, uh, you know, such as you know, uh, supporting uh, Ch Chase uh, for being for district attorney, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'd like uh, to see Chase win. That'd be great. And other, and other progressives, you know, but, you know, I'm also I'm very realistic. That's what sort of what my job is, to be very realistic. And so I'm not going to say anything about 
political chances of anyone. Yeah, I, I, I really cannot do that. Because uh, uh, I would attract enemies, I don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> and alienation, I don't need that. <laughs> well, you did that in your youth. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's... Um, but, you know, so I'm involved, and I, you know, so for, you know, young activists, millennial activists and organizers, yes, uh, start out with a, a hard line, but not something that's outright, outrageously extreme, like chop off their heads. No, that's not the starting point. No guillotines? Uh, <laughs> you have to move a little, you know, a little away from that as a starting <laughs> point. So the Mary Antoinette argument wouldn't, does it cut it? Uh. You know, the reason why we're underground is that we believe that we have to overthrow U.S. imperialism and replace it with a different society. And that's why we're underground, because it's going to take a long fight. And the reason it's going to take a fight is because they're going to make it be a fight. We, we want to make a revolution. We think there has to be a revolution. <laughs>